From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Benta Berkland, your host for this episode. The state legislature is back in session, and we're here today to talk about all things politics and policy. I'm with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. It's Thursday, a snow day, so we're all doing this from home. Hello from wintry Arvada. And we've got a special guest this week, CPR's Nathaniel Miner. Hello from snowy South Denver. Like Manta said, it's Thursday morning. It's February 25th. By the time you hear this, things will have changed, but hopefully not too much. Nate, you cover transportation, and so we really wanted to bring you on Purplish because that could end up being one of the biggest topics legislators work on this year. Yes, that's what I'm hearing, too. Um, We're all sort of waiting on pins and needles to see what at this point, but we know that it's going to be a big priority. Yeah, we've already seen some really interesting bills on other topics, and it seems like this could be the big piece of the legislative session that hasn't dropped yet, or at least one of them. That's right. And it does seem like every year state lawmakers talk about wanting to put more money into transportation. (laughs) There's bipartisan agreement on the problem. And Nate, can you just put it into perspective what the state's transportation needs are right now? Well, just to put a finer point on what the problem is, like the the most obvious example is traffic, right? I think we all have some experience with this of sitting on I-25 or whatever. Um, And that goes back to the state's population growth, right? A lot of people have moved here in the last couple decades. And the way that the state has grown in terms of, you know, new developments is mostly out. It's pretty sprawly. And that puts a lot of pressure on uh, the roads that we do have, I-70, I-25. But it's bad in other ways too, like safety. More than a thousand people died in the Denver area in uh, traffic crashes over a five-year period earlier this decade, right? So safety is another piece of this. And really the third leg of the stool here is multimodal transportation, transit, buses, trains, things like that. And what we know is that the state's largest transit system, RTD, in the Denver area, that was suffering even before the pandemic. They had a lot of budget problems. And since the pandemic, it's gotten even worse. So, um, you know, to shore that up in some way, I'm not exactly sure how, but that could be really key here, too. So I'm guessing, though, Nate, like a lot of state issues, this comes back to funding, right? Either the question of not having enough or depending who you ask, maybe not using it right. What are we looking at for the funding question? So just to give you a brief history here, a key part of the Colorado Department of Transportation's budget is the gas tax. Um, they get some money from the feds, but the state gas tax is a key part of that. Um, That's what I that, pay for a gallon of gas, like an extra handful of cents, right? Right. 22 cents a gallon. Uh, that has not moved since 1991. <laughs> and in that, in that time... Right. Inflation has gone up. So the purchasing power of a dollar has gone down. Vehicles are getting more fuel efficient. Right. So what that adds up to is the state doesn't have as much money as it used to, um, you know, once you adjust for inflation and things like that. So there have been some attempts to rectify that. There have been, I can think of three or four ballot measures going back to the 1990s to raise transportation dollars. Those have all failed. Um, and where that's left the state is the legislature will, you know, find some money here and there to give to CDOT. There was a big piece of legislation a couple of years ago, more than a billion dollars. But really, there's been no systemic change to the system. That's why we have sort of this chronic underfunding. Um, so CDOT has a $5 billion 10-year plan, but only about a third of that is funded at this point. I want to know more about what it actually looks like to be underfunded. I feel like I've 
paid some attention to this issue over the years and I constantly hear like, look at how much better Utah does than us. It's always about Utah. But generally, what would it actually mean to have a fully funded system? Would I suddenly be flying around the roads in my electric car with no traffic or what? Maintenance was a big part of this. But you know, that's really changed in the last couple of years, um, especially in more progressive circles. It's not generally accepted now that the way to fix congestion is just to make roads bigger. Because if you make a road bigger, say like I-25 south of Denver, right? 15 years ago, about there's a big, huge construction project that added light rail and it added, uh, it widened I-25. Um, within five years, congestion was was worse than it was before the project. The way to explain that is through this theory called induced demand. You make a road wider, more people are going to want to use it. So maybe there was a group of people that had avoided I-25 for years, but then once it got bigger and wider, they thought, oh, I'm going to drive to work now instead of taking the bus. You know, the more people do that, the worse traffic gets. You know, I think that the front range, the Denver region especially, is sort of reaching a point where um, you can't just expect everyone to drive to work. There's just not enough space. And yes, some roads, a CDOT does have uh, plans to widen some roads, like 270 north of downtown. Um, that'll probably get another lane in the next five, 10 years. And you see Central 70, for example, um, north of downtown. But there's only so much real estate at this point. There's no way I-70 can ever be 15 lanes across. They just can't afford to take all that land. Um, and environmentalists would scream bloody murder. A fully funded, well-operating transportation system is going to be some combination of safer roads um, that are better maintained, that are the size that they need to be. And that's a pretty contentious issue. So one that has alternatives, one where you can, you know, take a bus instead of driving and it is nearly as efficient, if not just as efficient. Um, as getting in your car, something that's a little more well-balanced, I, I think is the general thrust of what I'm hearing people want. Yes, I think you've done a great job of just telling us the scope of the problem. And it's one area where we see bipartisan agreement on the problem, but it has been a difficult issue for the legislature to grapple with, especially with voters not approving tax increases. And year after year, there's been these piecemeal approaches. So this session, we've got Democrats in charge, uh, like they have been the last couple years. They have very wide majority in the House and a pretty comfortable one in the Senate. And they're really pushing this proposal, even though it hasn't been introduced yet. So let's listen to what the Democratic Speaker of the House said about why he thinks this is so critically important. If we fail this time, there's nowhere else to turn. So I think this year is unlike any other because of the attention inside the building on it, because of the fact that we've learned the changes in how people are using our infrastructure. And we know what it's gonna take from looking at other states at, at how to uh, build those changes into the way that we fund um, our transportation system. I was struck by Garnett's strong endorsement and just his sense of urgency. Well, yeah, this is one of those problems, like you said, that everyone can agree exists and the solution has eluded them. And if Democrats can find a solution, get something done, that could be a real feather in their cap. So let's discuss this proposal that is in the works. It should be introduced, I'm told, in a couple of weeks. But in legislative world, that can change. So it's very iffy at this point. But the proposal would increase fees on gas 
But then also there's a lot of other fees that would be included in this on companies and technology and delivery. Nate, talk a little bit about that range of fees. Well, let's pull this apart here. So the first thing, a fee on gas, right? Like we mentioned before, there's already a gas tax. And we know that voters, they've been asked in the past to raise it and haven't. Legislators don't want to try again. They think that that's not going to go their way. So a gas fee, because of how the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights works, um, they don't need to go to voters on that. And you know, depending on how big they get on this, I think it could be a very big deal. If it's significant, it would raise a lot of revenue immediately. It would get people out of their cars probably because people couldn't afford to drive more. And that would actually fit in with the state's climate goals, right? That would be a good thing in that regard, but it would also be probably pretty unpopular with the public. The second piece of this, the fees on you know Amazon and, and DoorDash and stuff, that is, and electric vehicles for that matter too, that is really looking at the future, right? This is them trying to build a new funding system for the long term here, something where they're looking at everyone who uses the road and they're trying to figure out how to extract revenue from it so that you know they don't have to come back and try to rebuild the system in a couple of years, right? They have a trifecta right now, and I think they want to use it. Well, that's going to be really interesting to see how people react, because I could see some folks getting on board with the idea that we need to get revenue from these new ways that people are using the system. But as you mentioned, some of these are really going to hit people hard. A fee can be regressive. Think about who needs to drive, often people in working class jobs. The other thing is that like companies like Amazon, et cetera, tend to really advertise the fact that you're paying a fee. Like they don't like those fees. So we've seen like DoorDash when Denver has instituted a fee, puts it right there on your bill in huge letters. Here's the Denver fee. So if this were to pass, is this something where people are going to be so impressed by the results that they kind of forget that they hate fees or maybe not? Some of those companies, you know, DoorDash and Grubhub, you know, they deliver food to your home. That's been really popular, especially during COVID-19 when people can't go out. And that was a point Jesse Mallory made to me. He is the state director for the conservative group Americans for Prosperity. That group strongly pushes ballot initiatives to stop this type of thing, like fee increases and tax increases Mm -hmm. and things. And so he thinks Democrats are being hypocritical with this whole effort. When they say that the focus of this legislative session is to help communities on the margins and small businesses, the conflicting message it sends to then say, oh, but we're going to add these transportation fee increases on everybody, which do more than just hit people at the pump, increases the cost of deliveries, groceries, uh, RTD, everything. I mean, the cost of everything goes up. And when you have this many people who are living on the margins in this difficult environment, it's hard to sell to them that, hey, I'm here looking out for you doing all these things because you need help. But P.S., you can pay more. I mean, it, it doesn't work. It's either or. Well, that really speaks to me to this bigger point that Democrats and lawmakers in trying to do this are playing with a double-edged sword. It might finally get things done, but we've seen evidence recently that voters are really not a big fan of fees collectively. They, They passed in Colorado this ballot initiative that says that essentially the lawmakers need the permission of the voters to create new fees, just like they do with uh, raising taxes. And a lot of people may think that that would actually apply in a situation like this, where the government's trying to raise a significant amount of new money from these fees. 
But for some various legal reasons, that doesn't apply to this situation. Lawmakers won't need permission. Maybe, Nate, you can explain that because the proposal Andy's talking about, it was on the ballot this November. So a lot of people may remember voting for or against it. And I know when this proposal first came out or you know people were talking about it, I was like, wait, what about that ballot initiative? But explain how they can do this legally. So the ballot initiative requires voter approval for any new enterprises, government enterprises that collect fees over a certain amount. And that's that's key here because uh, the state already has a handful of transportation related enterprises that could implement and collect these fees. So because this is not a new enterprise, it's kind of the key language here. Right. I mean, there still might be a legal challenge to it, but that is what legislators have told me. To make this even more interesting politically and policy-wise, this is not just about fees and how much they should be increased and where, it's also how the money will be spent. So when I was talking to Democratic Senator Faith Winter, who will be one of the main sponsors of the bill, she said this idea is not just, hey, we'll raise a bunch more money. It, there's going to be incentives and kind of requirements to spend it in certain ways. That may be controversial, too. Yeah, we don't know a whole lot about this yet. We'll have to wait to see what the legislation says. But, you know, listening to a handful of legislative preview events, it, it's clear that the legislators here that are behind this, they're not just going to hand this money over to CDOT. The state has these big climate goals, right? We're supposed to reduce emissions, both from things like oil and gas extraction, but also from transportation. Transportation is a really difficult problem here in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and other pollutions. And so by making roads wider, you're going to incentivize people to drive more. So they want to avoid that. How they do that is going to be really critical. One key way could be to increase money for transit. That's an effective way to get people out of their cars. But we also know that Coloradans really like to drive. <laughs> Just look at how this state has been built. This could be a key point of tension here. And I don't think it'll fall particularly on party lines. That's going to be something to watch is how much money goes to transit, how much money goes to roads themselves. Well, you might uh, assume that raising money is easier than spending money, but it seems like they're both going to be a really big part of this debate. And we've already heard kind of rumblings about this. When I was interviewing Hugh McKean, the Republican minority leader in the House, he made a big point of talking about transit versus highway as one of these big fault lines and kind of implying that Republicans will be at the table really fighting back against how this money is spent potentially, especially in uh, your non-Denver areas. And I also wanted to add to that, that I think Republicans have long said that they feel like transportation should be this line item in the existing budget. And that the legislature should just spend what it has. And if this is a priority, they shouldn't be looking for any ways to get money. The key here in understanding this tension is, I think on the more progressive side, there's a belief that the way that we live needs to change. We can't keep driving everywhere. And I think there's going to be a lot of pushback to that. And that is going to bleed over it, not into just transportation funding itself and how it's spent, but they're also talking about land use. And historically, that's something that localities, cities have decided how to build. So if the state gets involved in any way and even incentivizing, um, you know, one proposal I've heard is, you know, we'll give cities more money for transportation projects if they build more densely near transit stops. 
that sounds like common sense, but just for even the state to wade into that arena, I think could be pretty controversial. But we'll have to see, you know, we'll, what this language says. Nate, I know you will be helping us cover transportation and, and, and these other ideas as they progress. And I, I think it's going to be one of the most interesting topics of this session and consequential, depending upon what happens. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Purplish. Yeah, you're welcome. So we talk about Colorado politics every week on this show, obviously, and often enough, we have these moments that we refer to as our wait, what moments, things that made us stop and pause and think. Sometimes they're funny. This week, it is not. We're going to talk briefly about some of the monuments and the art up at the Capitol. There's been a lot of debate after the racial justice protests during the summer and fall about some of the portraits and art and statues at the Capitol. If you remember, the a Civil War statue that was standing in front of the Colorado Capitol was torn down. Yeah. And that's been moved to History Colorado. That was a statue of a Union cavalry soldier, which was different than what we saw in other cities where Confederate soldiers were torn down amid the protests, Confederate figures. But this soldier was from a group of Union soldiers who were later involved in the Sand Creek Massacre, where they killed more than 150 Cheyenne and Arapaho people. Then more recently, we've seen questions about a different piece of art, right? Yeah, former Governor Lawrence Morley. He was elected in the mid-1920s when the KKK was really prominent in Colorado. And he was a member of the KKK, and he ran on an anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic platform. And some of these portraits had been refurbished, and they were going to be displayed in the Capitol on the first floor. And there was a discussion about whether this guy should be included in this display. And the committee decided he should be. There's going to be a biography so you can learn more about his his past. But I think hmm. some people were like, wait, what? He He's going to be included. You know, we didn't know what the committee would decide on that, especially given what happened previously with the Civil War statue. Yeah, I think it shows you that there is no settled society wide answer for how governments and, and other authorities are dealing with these questions. And maybe there's not a real clear distinction between why he stays up and why the Union soldier moves to the museum. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that the Union soldier is outside and harder to defend from people who might take that statue down. It's clearly a big question for our time. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in your feeds next week. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Brooklyn with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. You can keep up with everything that we've discussed this week and more with us on Twitter. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. And I'm at Benta Berkland. And we want to know more about you, our podcast listeners. If you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know a little bit about yourselves. Or you can email us at news at CPR.org. Yeah, you can let us know whatever you think is relevant. Where do you live? What do you do? Are you a politics junkie or do you make an exception just for us? Do you just like to hear us talk for some reason? Are there topics that you wish that we would talk about in future episodes? Let us know. Thank you. This is Purplish from CPR News. Okay, guys, I think that's a wrap.